It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Welcome to the Lighthouse Faith Podcast, where we are moving forward in truth and love. I'm Lauren Green, Chief Religion Correspondent for Fox News Channel and author of the book Lighthouse Faith. You know, when Jesus walked the earth, people saw him, they heard him, they touched him. And he also touched them, the earth, the buildings, the ground. He lived and breathed the air. And what's more, the events in the Bible of Jesus's life told to us in the four gospel accounts are real places, towns, and landmarks, and some of which we can visit, like Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Um, But some events that happen, we don't have enough information to know exactly where they took place, like the wedding at Cana. We know it took place, but we um, don't know exactly where it is. And then that's where Jesus performed his first miracle, the turning of water into wine. And this is where archaeology has been extremely helpful in bringing the accounts of the Bible to life. And author Michael Hesemann's, uh, does, Hesemann does exactly that. And in his book called Jesus of Nazareth, Archaeologists Retracing the Footsteps of Christ. And Michael is the author of some 44 books, including Mary of Nazareth and the international bestseller on Pope Benedict XVI. He co-wrote with Monsignor Georg Ratzinger, his brother, called My Brother the Pope. And Michael joins me now. Welcome, Michael. Yeah, thank you. It's a great pleasure and honor to be on your podcast. And uh, I hope you liked and enjoyed the book. Oh, I, I do. I mean, you know, I, I read the uh, that's the book. The uh, my brother, the Pope, was how we first met. Um, I met you in Rome, and it's like, oh my gosh, you were the author of that book that I just read. I'm sure my cat's making a lot of noise back here, but. Um, and I uh, made you meeting Georg Lapsinger. <laughs> you played for him on his birthday. Yes. On the on the fifteenth um, uh, of January. And, yeah, that's uh, how we first met. I, you invited me to go play for him. For both was ninety fourth birthday, and then for his ninety fifth birthday in the Vatican, you gave a concert in the presence of Pope Benedict and Cardinal Müller, and of course Georg Ratzinger. So you you really became a, a star musician uh, at the Vatican, <laughs> and uh, they were so happy about you and uh, being there, and uh, it was such a wonderful concert. So I only. Think of you with, you know, the greatest warmth in my heart and the greatest gratitude for what you came over from America to participate in this beautiful event. It was it was such an, an incredible blessing for me, too. And, of course, I brought my mother, who um, who just recently passed in October. And I'm I'll so tell you, that you. event was one of was not the highlight of her life, except the birth of her children, of course. But, I mean, it was just this incredible event. And here she was, this 90-year-old woman, and meeting Pope Benedict and, you know, she didn't know the, the rules of protocol when you greet a Pope. And so she just hugged him. <laughs> I think that was just kind of, and he loved it. And he, and loved, he loved it. <laughs> yes. And he loved it. And she loved, and she loved it. He loved it. And I think it was the biggest smile I ever saw on his face is when my mother gave him that hug and just. Absolutely. There. Absolutely. And why you shouldn't hug him, you know, he, they are both in the same age. And, right. um, you know, they loved each other and they came from different worlds and different backgrounds and, and he an American woman and a, a German Pope. And, you know, this was such a beautiful warmth between both of them. And, uh, you know, on, on the birthday, on the 90th birthday of his beloved brother, who unfortunately passed away 
on July the 1st of last year. Yeah, but I'm very um, sorry. at least, you know, at least we, we celebrate him really in the in a, in a most um, beautiful way. And yeah. uh, thanks to you, and of course, also thanks to the other musicians who were like uh, Mr. Nöth, the great tenor, and like yes. Mr. Public, the great um, violinist. And um, so I think it was, it was quite it was a wonderful, wonderful event, and lots of people in the Vatican will remember it for the rest of their life. And I'll tell you, <laughs> if that picture of my mom and Pope Benedict were ever circulated in the press, people would totally change their understanding of Pope Benedict XVI. You know, that he, he had this impression... It, Everybody in the media, you know, were well, mainstream media talked about Pope Benedict as sort of this cold, sort of calculating person. And here he is, this warm man, smiling well, no, from year to year. Yes, yes, yes. He was he was a little bit shy um, for all his life, and this is why people believed that he is cold. But the opposite is true. He is one of the most warm-hearted um, men I ever met in my life, and and he really loved your mother, and and uh, you know. Uh, Behind this shy intellectual uh, facade is is just a wonderful, warm human being, and I think this is what both of them proved. And, and your your mother made him proving it and showing it to the world. <laughs> as, as I say again, we loved her, and everybody loved her. You know, you, you can't do anything other than, than love your mother, who <laughs> really was was um, absolutely, 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 absolutely an angel on earth. <laughs> absolutely, and ninety eight years old, and I'm honestly, you know, she lived a great life, and. Uh, I'm so happy and so blessed to have had her as my mother. So I'm, you yeah, know, I'm so happy wonderful. she was still able to travel and enjoy it all. You know, she was of very good health and and um, yes. come back to Europe and saw Regensburg and saw Rome and all, all those beautiful places. And, and I'm so happy she was able to travel. And um, thanks Absolutely. God she had a beautiful daughter who took her everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Not this the usual thing. Sometimes children say, well, you know, it's my work and my world and you stay home. Oh, but, no. Yeah, she was the best. She was the best. <laughs> well, speaking of, I mean, speaking of traveling and everything, I want to get to your book because this book is called Jesus of Nazareth, Archaeologist Retracing the Footsteps of, of, of Christ. This actually came out last February. Actually, the second edition actually came out last February. And it was a book that you first wrote in 2009. Um, uh, what's the difference in the book now that you've um, that's just come out? You know, the difference is that this book is updated. The difference is that you know, in, in between two thousand nine and twenty twenty one, there are lots of new archaeological discoveries, which of course you know I couldn't foresee. So I had to include them in the American version of the book. So this book is more complete than the German original version. Um, it um, still includes all the original information, but um, all the new discoveries are added. Like, for example, something very significant, a, a ring bearing the name of Pontius Pilate was found in the Herodium, in the fortress of Herod the Great, the palace fortress near Bethlehem. Mm. So we have another written evidence for Pontius Pilate, um, besides the inscription bearing his name, which was found in 1961, in Caesarea Maritima, um, the, the residence of the um, prefect of Judea. And um, another um, important thing is that um, they found the real birthplace of St. Peter and St. Andrew in Bethsaida, just on the shores of oh. the lake in Nazareth. And uh, Peter and Andrew are the brothers, are the brothers. And it's very important to understand that St. Peter 
is sort of you know the 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 the, the brother who from the Roman Catholicism and then Saint Andrew people think of more as the, from the Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. Is that right? Right, absolutely, because he was preaching both in Greece and Byzantium, and um, there are even legends, but he made it uh, to um, Crimea and, and, and to what is modern-day Kiev. And mm-hmm. uh, there was a church on the hill where, allegedly, um, he was um, proclaiming the gospel to the early Ukrainian people. So, um, of course, both of them, Peter and uh, Andrew, um, are the patron saints of the divided church, so to say. Yeah, and, unfor- uh, unfortunately, it's divided because of us. So, yeah, yes. Yeah, because of politics mainly. And um, it was a beautiful um, act of Pope Paul VI to return the, the skull of uh, Andrew the Apostle to the Greek Orthodox Church mm. in um, the 1960s. And um, so now in, in Patras in Greece, we have both the cross, he was crucified on an X-shaped cross, and um, also the skull of uh, St. Andrew. And as I say, the birthplace is in Bethsaida, and it was discovered. And this is one of the um, several new um, discoveries. Also, of course, Magdala, the city of Mary Magdalene. And um, mm. they started the excavations in, in 2009. But um, in the meantime... They, they completely excavated um, a great part of this city and, and got a very clear impression of the life in the time of our Lord. And they even excavated the synagogue um, of Magdala, actually now two synagogues in Magdala. Um, and we know from St. Mark that our Lord was um, teaching in the synagogues around the lake. And yes. um, the plural indicates there were many, and um, two of them we have, and since both of them were built before the time of Christ, we can be sure that he visited them and we can, we can be sure that his feet touched the ground, touched the floor, and uh, that this was where he was um, also performing miracles and probably wow. healing Mary the Magdalene, uh, who was possessed by seven demons. And um, all those miracles, the places of all those miracles, we know today, and you mentioned Cana, um, Cana, the wedding of Cana, which is uh, something we commemorate in the in the Gospel of of this um, now and, and um, absolutely um, in uh, January. And Cana was excavated by American archaeologists, and it is not the place where you get the wedding wine north of Nazareth, mm-hmm. which is Cana, but not Kirbet Cana. Kirbet Cana means the ruin of Cana, which is on a on a hill in a valley north of Nazareth. Um, now you pronounce it Cana, and I've always yeah. heard it as Cana, the wedding at Cana. Wedding at Cana. Is that the difference between a German and, a, and, a, and, a, and an English pronunciation? Abso- absolutely, absolutely. This is. Uh, excuse me for for using the German. That's okay. That's okay. The wedding at Cana. The no, wedding no, at Cana. I studied at an American university, and uh, <laughs> Cana and, and Cana is the same place. And this is where the wedding took place, and it was excavated, and they found the Byzantine sanctuary built above the place where our Lord turned water into wine. And I think it's uh, significant. This is one thing that's always fascinated about me, not about me, but it has fascinated me about this particular miracle. And, and I'm doing more study on this because there is this, if you analyze the wedding at Cana and uh, Jesus turning water into wine, and you have to ask yourself, why is this the first miracle? 
of turning water into wine, but there's something Absolutely. there is something very important about the jugs that he told yes. the servants to put water in. I see you read the book and you understand the book. It is actually the most significant um, of the early miracles. Um, yes. If you follow the story um, of the miracle as described by St. John in his gospel, first of all, you know, Our Lady um, is the one who, who tells our Lord they don't have any wine anymore. So we have the important role of Our Lady, and she is the one who tells the servants, okay, you do as he tells you. So what is actually an appeal to all of us, we should listen to our Lord. And mm-hmm. then um, our Lord, first of all, said, well, woman, woman, he doesn't say mother, he says right. it in another root way, woman, this is not of my concern. I can only quote it, uh, retranslate it from German because I, you know, I don't know the Bible by mind, <laughs> by heart in English. But um, anyway, this is not my concern. My hour has not yet come. Yeah. When did his hour come? This is a very clear reference to his hour, which is the hour of Calvary, which is the time between the Last Supper and the Resurrection. This is his hour. So he refers already to the end of his ministry and the moment of salvation. And then we learn about this six large jars of stone. And if we know archaeology, we know anything about Judaism in the first century, we know that ritual purity was the most important aspect of Judaism in at the time of Christ, because with the building of the second temple, which originally was the third temple, because the first temple was built by Solomon, and the second was built after we returned from the Babylonian captivity, and then Herod built the third temple, and this is the fulfillment of the of the messianic prophecy. And he wanted the Jews to believe that he is the Messiah. He, Herod, is the Messiah. But of course, the Jews knew he is not because he was not even a real Jew. His mother was a pagan Nabataean from Petra in in modern-day Jordan. Mm -hmm. And his father was an um, Edomite. Um, So, but he wanted to uh, show and he wanted to, you know, imitate um, Solomon and show the Jews that he is the Messiah and the greatest king and so on. And but they knew what was the building of the third temple where Messiah would come. And so they prepared for it. And they prepared by ritual purity. And in archaeology, you call it a, a leading fossil of first century Judaism. But you mm-hmm. find stone vessels everywhere. And the stone vessels were made for water of ritual purification. Because only stone was considered um Kosher was considered ritually pure. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else, not. You know, silver was made from pagan silver coins, and, you know, clay is, of course, not pure, ritually pure, but stone was made by God, and the stone vessels were made for water, for ritual purity, and this is actually what John even refers to. And this water is turned by our Lord into wine, what means something very significant because the wine is what later on the Last Supper is turned into his blood for our salvation. And what he's teaching us is that we don't need this outer ritual purity, this formalism, 
Actually, in another sequence of, of the Gospels, we Pharisees tell our Lord why your disciples don't wash. And it doesn't mean that they're stinking and, you know, they're <laughs> bloody people or whatever. No, it means why do we not participate in the ritual um, cleansing and the ritual washing? Why don't they go in the mikvah in the Jewish ritual bath? And because our Lord taught that this is not important, important is inner purity, not outer purity to get into the kingdom of God. And so in his hour, he turns the water into his precious blood, which is built for our salvation. And this is the sacrament, the blessed sacrament, which is the guarantee for our salvation by eating his flesh and drinking his blood in form of the Eucharist. And we have this beautiful quote by San Jerome, who was once asked, well, our Lord turned 600 liters, I don't know what it is in, in gallons, but 600 liters, which is quite a lot, is, um, of water into wine. For what did, did he make them all drunk? And <laughs> Jerome said, no, we are still drinking from it. And this is such a beautiful wow. quote because it says that in really every Holy Mass and every Eucharist, we are still drinking from it and we are still um, using it. We are still based on this tradition and this event, what happened in this sign and this divine revelation. Wow. And of course, of course, St. Jerome I did not mean it literally, of course, you know, he didn't refer to the wedding wine, which was sold to the tourists, to the pilgrims in, in Kefalkena. But he refers to the fact that this is the very moment where the sacrament of the Eucharist was prepared by our Lord. And even today, actually, even today, the priest is mixing water and wine um, in the chalice, um, which, of course, also is... is uh, um, a sign connected to what happened on Calvary when the when the Roman soldier pierced the side of our Lord and blood and water came out, which also has a, a physical, a biological uh, meaning because um, he had water in the lungs after um, after um, fighting with death on the cross for such a long time and suffering yeah. for such a long time. But still, um, it it also goes back to this element of purification, but we Christians don't need an outer purification, but we get completely purified by the blood of our Lord, which wow. is the the, uh, is the wine transformed right, into right. blood. We're gonna, Michael, we're gonna, we need to take a break right now on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. We'll be right back with just in just a moment. We'll be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. And we're back with Michael Hesseman, author of Jesus of Nazareth, archaeologist retracing the footsteps of Christ. And we were talking before about, uh, before the break on about the wedding at Cana and that being Jesus' first miracle of turning water into wine and the biblical significance of that. Um, I can't stress that enough. And actually, the book I'm working on right now really has to do with that. In fact, it's, 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 it's subtitled The Power of the Blood. Um, what I want to move on to, though, is this, because in the beginning of the book, you talk about this discovery of a Roman bathhouse from the first century in Nazareth. And, and, right. and I want to get to the significance of that, because, you know, one of the things that's really significant about, about finding anything that's first century in Nazareth, um, 
you know that it's a place that where Jesus probably would have walked or touched, which is so important to a Christian to say, oh my goodness, this is not just this place that somebody made up. It's a real place. What, why is it significant that we found this Roman bathhouse in Nazareth? Well, actually, um, the latest research, which is quoted in my book, um, has shown that it is a Byzantine bathhouse. Ah, Byzantine. Uh, okay. Which um, it actually um, was built for the pilgrims who came to Nazareth. And we know that even many high-ranking pilgrims, uh, beginning with the Empress Helena to other empresses and then patrician women, um, came to Nazareth as pilgrims. So um, it was a part of the pilgrim infrastructure. And um, we now discovered um, a fourth century church just behind it. So here again, um, archaeology has solved the mystery. If it would have been Roman, it would indicate uh, to um, the influence of the pagan world in Nazareth. And, uh, but we have something much more important. We have a um, Roman Hellenistic metropolis, um, Zephyrus, only six uh, miles away from Nazareth, and um, which was completely excavated, which was built by Herod Antipas um, mm -hmm. beginning um, 4 BC. And, um, you know, it, it took a, a couple of decades to complete it. And since St. Joseph was a tecton, which means a, a house builder, it doesn't mean a carpenter because carpenter is very, you know, limited profession. And, and you're a carpenter in an area where you have a lot of wood, but they didn't have a lot, a lot of wood and timber in, um, in Galilee. So a, a, a tecton there was a house builder who was mainly working with stone, also with wood, but mainly with stone. Ah. And um, as a house builder, of course, he was looking for jobs. And um, six miles away, um, you had the biggest construction site in the country. So it means, of course, he worked there. And uh, in Judaism, it was a custom that um, a son learns the profession of his father or the craft of his father. So we know, first of all, from the Gospels, Mark says, isn't he the carpenter? The people in Nazareth say, according to St. Mark, isn't he the carpenter, the son of Mary? And um, so our Lord learned the craft of, of a, a carpenter, of a tecton, of a house builder. And um, he for sure, went with his father to Zephyrus to work there, with, which means he was confronted with the Roman and Hellenistic culture of his age. So our idea that Nazareth was a remote little village in the middle of nowhere, our little hut in the prairie, is wrong. Um, indeed, he was exposed to the international globalist culture of his time, um, what means he was not, you know, a, 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 how you say, hilly-billy. Um, <laughs> but he, he, he was a cosmopolitan Jew much more than in somebody who came from, from Judea, um, which was a more homogeneous Jewish culture, not so internationally as Galilee was. And another important aspect is Zephyrus even had a Greek theater. So it means he was exposed to the world of theater. And we find it in the Gospels. How many times did our Lord use the Greek word hypocrite? 
which mean, oh. does mean hypocrites as we use it today, but it means actors in Greek. It was the Greek work for actors. So he used yeah. a word from the language of theater and he says, you are all actors, you are playing a role, but it is not you. And so it is, again, a sign of divine providence, but our Lord was raised in this cosmopolitan um, area. He spoke probably perfect Koine Greek, which was the common Greek, like English now is the language of the internet. The world mm -hmm. language was Koine, a simple form of Greek. And of course, he spoke uh, um, Aramaic, which was uh, the local language, the local dialect, so to say. And then Hebrew was the language like Latin in the Catholic Church until a couple of years ago was the Celtic, the religious language, which we had to read for the Bar Mitzvah when you become um, religiously introduced into Judaism. So uh, the vision our Lord had was not a limited vision, a vision just limited and concentrated on the people of Israel, but on the ancient world. And this is why the Gospels were originally written in Greek. And this is why the mission went out, first of all, in the Greek-speaking countries, and then the rest of the Roman Emperor, the Greek was also understood, um, like Italy and even Spain, um, St. Paul mentions, but he even came to Spain. So, what was, uh, what was, what was some of the most... Man. God became man. Let me quickly say, uh, make okay. this point. In the very best moment in history, and this shows divine providence, because this was the first globalization which took place in the time of the Roman Emperor Octavian Augustus, when... For the very first time, we had an international great empire. Of course, you know, um, Alexander the Great had his empire by conquering the Persian Empire, but it was, it, it didn't include so many countries and cultures as the Roman Empire. And under Octavian Augustus, for the first time, we had peace in this region. You can say, you can read it in the Roman Martyrologium. Um, for, for Christmas, the Roman Martyrology for Christmas. Mm -hmm. Um, under, Augustus, when in the world, in all the world was peace. And indeed, this is when the infrastructure of the Roman roads was built, where you right. could travel safely across the world. And this infrastructure of Roman roads was used by the apostles to spread the gospel in the ancient world. 50 years before, if Christ would have been born 50 years before, he would have been born in the Hasmonean Jewish kingdom, which was a remote desert kingdom nobody took notice of in the ancient world. 50 years later, um, his ministry would have ended up in the Jewish revolt when Judaism, when, when Judea was destroyed, when Jerusalem was destroyed and Jews were persecuted in the Roman world. But in this moment of globalization, when Herod was the king of, of Israel, um, Judaism was suddenly becoming famous and unwoke and hip, so to say, <laughs> yeah. because he changed this desert kingdom into a boom kingdom, into something like the Emirates of the first uh, century BC, because he used the possibilities of the globalization for his own purposes. He, and this was the big difference between him and most of our politicians, he was able to multiply money not spend money, not waste money, but multiply money. 
he was a clever man. He was a tyrant, of course. He was a <laughs> psychopath. He was a paranoid, but he was also also um, quite uh, an efficient ruler um, because he knew what the Romans need to pacify the Mediterraneans. They had to build up a fleet to fight the pirates. So they needed to build a fleet and they needed the asphalt from the Dead Sea to uh, for, for shipbuilding, you know, to make yeah. the ships waterproof. Right, right. And, right. and he sold it to the Romans for a great amount of money, for so much money that he was able to rent the uh, copper mines on Cyprus. And then he imported tin from Cornwall in England and um, uh, produced brass, which was a very important uh, material in this time. So Herod was a pretty good businessman. I mean, we talked about Herod. He was a very good businessman. And so he built a harbor city, Caesarea Maritima, which was the connection point between Judea and the Roman world. And suddenly Mm -hmm. export was possible. And you read that the fish from the Lake Gennesaret was a a, a very prominent food on the Roman markets. And they loved it. It was salted and dried and sold to the Romans and shipped over to to, um, the capital. And so the the man who produced the salted fish and smoked fish in Magdala became very rich. And our excavations in Magdala have shown that they were very rich, very rich. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was something like a, a Galilean Pompeii, what we found there. Yeah, a lot yeah. of luxury, a lot of, um, of, of wealth. And so... Um, Everybody profited, and he was able to build this temple, and he was able to build the palaces everywhere, and he was able to build an aqueduct bringing water from Mount Carmel to Caesarea Maritima because there was no other water there. So everybody was impressed by him and looking at him like we are looking at the Emirates today or Saudi Arabia, how rich Mm -hmm. they are there. And suddenly the Roman intellectuals um, got to learn more about Judaism because the Jewish merchants f- sent out by Herod were mm-hmm. going all over and put and, and building up trading posts in Rome, in the Greek world, everywhere in every major city you had a, a Judean, a Jewish trading post. And from there they built synagogues and in the synagogues they were reading the prophets and this is something which the educated Romans found very fascinating. Even the wife of Nero, Poppea, became Jewish. For most men, it was not so desirable to become Jewish because of the circumcision, which, you know, if right. <laughs> it's very painful and very dangerous because we didn't have the hygienics and the narcosis which we have today. But still they laughed and they were called the God-fearers. They loved Judaism. So there was a basic for the spread of the gospel because this is where St. Paul went. He went to the synagogues and spoke to both the Jews and the pagans who came there and proclaimed the gospel And even when, you know, the apostles came to Rome, not only slaves, but also patricians, senators, were among the first converted, like Pudens, for example, who gave his house to the early church, which became the first Vatican, the the house of Pudens in the Via Urbana in in Rome. And so it was not only a low-class, but also a high-class religion. But this openness to Judaism, you only had in this time, in these decades following Herod the Great, when everybody in the Roman Empire was impressed. So, so the this, most perfect so moment for the incarnation of God 
was this very point in history where we had the globalization, which only now, 2,000 years later, uh, repeated. But before or after, it wouldn't have been the perfect moment. This is incredible because I, this is actually confirmed by a book by J. Warner Wallace called A Person of Interest. And he charts all of those things you're talking about from, you know, thousands of years before um, Jesus is born, talking about how everything is moving towards this moment in history. It's like this Goldilocks moment, but it's divine by divine design that this is when Jesus is born. And it's a very narrow window. Like you explained 50 years before would have been different. 50 years after would have been different, but this is a very narrow window. And archeology span is, is really uncovering a lot of these things that we just didn't understand. Is there, if there's one thing that you discovered in your book, or that in your research that is probably one of the most significant things, what what would that be if we haven't mentioned it already? Well, actually, one of the most significant things um, is that we even have a half of the inscription of the title of the cross, um, which Hmm. was quoted literally by St. John, and which is indicating that the gospel according to St. John is an eyewitness um, testimony as tradition teaches. You know, the, the modernist theology sometimes say, well, the Gospels were written decades later and were written by teams in the early um, parishes and whatever. No, this is not true. And um, at least the Gospel of St. John was really written by St. John, uh, who was there, understanding under the cross, and he quotes it right. And I actually had this relic, half of the title of the cross, the other half remained in Jerusalem and got lost after it was discovered by St. Helena in 325 AD. But the half in Rome, we still have, and I presented it to seven experts on the dating of inscriptions. We call it paleography or comparative paleography. And they all dated it in the time of Christ and, and confirming the authenticity of this relic. So this is the oldest juridical record um, so to say, which we still have an original, which is mentioned in the, in the in the Gospels, and, and uh, Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. So he, he dictated it by himself and uh, mentioned that Christ is the Rex Judeorum and the King of the Jews. So this original juridical document is, is at least one of the most significant um, discoveries of, of Bible archaeology. But, uh, you know, every discovery is a piece in the jigsaw puzzle and, and gives... Uh, all together they gave the complete view and they confirmed that the Gospels were not um, written far away and, 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 and far distant in time, but they, they um, contain local experiences and local knowledge. For example, there's one uh, actually Jewish fisherman uh, at the Lake Gennesaret, a very educated fisherman, I have to say, who compared um, everything you learn about fishing from the Gospels with what modern-day fishermen knew about the lake, his topography, the conditions for fishing, and so on, and, and the weather conditions. And he said this is so accurate that only eyewitnesses could have described it with such a precision. If you take the Gospel of Mark in, in your hands and go through the ruins of Capernaum or Capernaum, you find everything 
as he describes it. And um, according to tradition, St. Mark was the translator of St. Peter when St. Peter was in Rome. And on request of the Romans, he wrote it all down. So in the Gospel of St. Mark, we have the testimony of St. Peter himself. And this um, is an explanation why you have so many details about fishing and so many details about Galilee, especially uh, right mm. there. So the and Gospels he, are not mythology, it, and, and this is what St. Peter wrote in, in one of his two letters, but um, we did not follow myths and legends and, 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 and stories, but we witnessed the Lord in his glory. And we have to really learn to trust the Gospels. We have to rediscover them because, you know, this is, this is the, the Gospel is the good news for our, and, and, and the base of our, for our salvation. So it's very important that we learn to trust them. And we shouldn't get led astray by modern theology. The Bible is truth and the Gospels say the truth. And we, we can trust them because archaeology has proven them to be accurate. Wonderful. Uh, Michael, I want to thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. Again, the book is called Jesus of Nazareth, Archaeologists Retracing the Footsteps of Christ. Uh, Michael Hesemann, um, thank you so much for being on Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And thank you much for, for reconnecting because this has just been wonderful. Um, and you've got a new book coming out in the, in the spring. What is that? Yes, my new book, which will come out, is about Pope Pius and the Holocaust. It's called The Pope and the Holocaust because in um, two years ago, uh, Pope Francis opened the Vatican archives for the times of the Second World War and the pontificate of Pius XII. And we, we found hundreds and thousands of new documents proving that really the church did everything possible to save as many Jews as possible. And that thanks to the interventions of Pope both the Pope and the Vatican, nearly a million Jews were saved from the Holocaust. So wow. this book it will be published by Ignatius Press in the spring. And I hope I can talk about it with you in the future. Absolutely. But once again, I'm so happy we met again this way here. And I wish you only God's rich blessings also for the new year. God bless you. And, and I'm sure that your wonderful mother is, is already in heaven and looking down and, and smiling that we reconnected. Oh, thank you so much, Michael. And thank you so much for being a Lighthouse Faith Podcast. And thank you all for listening to Lighthouse Faith Podcast. I'm Lauren Green. Have a very blessed day. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.